0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metrick, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Wist.
2: On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments.
1: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a
2: farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie.
1: We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Fields. Today we're very excited and honored to have joining us Peter H. Wood, who's a great historian of agriculture and other topics, and we're really excited to speak with him about his work. And this is part of our ongoing series specifically about grains, uh, the history of rice cultivation in the U.S., and how grains have shaped cities and are reshaping uh, cities in the era of climate disruption. So Peter, thank you so much for making time. Uh, We're really excited to speak to you today. Um, Can you just give us a quick introduction? Maybe, uh, you know, what have you been up to over your your rich career as a historian?
3: Sure. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm a retired early American historian from Duke University. So I started studying early American history back in the 60s as an undergraduate. And And then a graduate student um, decided I wanted to focus on that period before the American Revolution. Um, And I was coming along right at the time of the civil rights movement. Uh, Colonial history in those days was a very lily white field. And I wanted to try to find some topic of research that uh, involved early American history and, and black history all at the same time. Uh, And I'll tell you more about that later. But but since then, that's been an undercurrent of all my work. Um, But I've I've branched out in lots of other directions, written about the artist Winslow Homer and about the explorer Robert LaSalle and uh, why Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon and, and all kinds of things along the way. But the study of, of the origins of, of race slavery in North America has always been central to me, and, and that led me to the, to the study of, of rice uh, in, in, a, in a way that, that we can discuss, uh, it, much to my surprise.
1: That's great. Thank you for that intro. And yeah, I, I love that your career goes from you know the origins of slavery and rice agriculture all the way to, to Ford-Nixon Oh, I so left out my
3: latest, my latest article is about ancient dugout canoes on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. So i reached back a thousand years or so on that one.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I, I like the spread. Um, so this is a show about urban ag. So we wanted to spend some time diving into the topic of grains, which is perhaps paradoxical, uh, but we found there's some curious connections between grain-growing regions, different grain-growing regions around the world, um, how seeds travel And we were wondering about the development of cities and the movements of peoples and the development of different cultures. And the history of rice cultivation in the U.S. seems like a a really, really interesting place to start in in that case because you have um, a grain and grain knowledge about growing that grain coming from uh, West Africa um, and being transmitted by uh, enslaved persons and giving rise to different cultural effects, right? So um, we, we thought to talk to you and some other scholars. Actually, by the way, we spoke to your, your colleague, Professor uh, Professor Etta Fields Black, uh, who was phenomenal. Um, she was really great, yeah. So, um, you know, and we also talked to researchers about new grains, for example, kernza, which is a whole new um, uh, a perennial wheat varietal, uh, and different kinds of barley, and how different grain-eating habits by consumers in cities could shape a rural landscape. So that gives you a sense of sort of the arc. Um, but to kick us off today, um, maybe could you tell us a little about where and how rice was grown before Europeans colonized the Americas? And maybe, you know, how did rice come to the land that, that we call the United States? Um, and, and maybe how did you come to that work, I guess? Um,
3: well, Rice goes cultivated, dom- domesticated rice goes back thousands of years. So it's hard to even be precise about it. We certainly know that it uh, was being grown in uh, in both in China and in India perhaps 3,000 years ago and and sh- spread in across Southeast Asia and then and then elsewhere. So eventually it reaches, the Mediterranean Uh, by 700, 800 AD, it's being grown in Southern Italy and a few other places on the Mediterranean coast. It's also being grown on the coast of West Africa. Um, And so it had been growing there and being being used, utilized, cooked, processed uh, for hundreds of years before the slave trade began um in in North America there were very few uh there were almost no uh grains of the kind that that we know them you know wh- wheat and and uh, 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 is is introduced uh, later um but there was a, a so-called wild rice that was growing in in Minnesota and, and uh, Wisconsin region um the um, People known as the Ojibwe, Chippewa Indians uh, would harvest that, and and it's still known as as wild rice. But genetically, it's it's a it's a grass. It's a very distant cousin of of the rice that's grown around the world, and that's consumed by more than half the people in the world. Uh, because we're still a fairly Anglo culture, we're not particularly notable rice growers or rice eaters. Um, But but rice was a profitable crop in the colonial period. And that's where my interest in in pushing into the early origins of North American slavery took me to South Carolina, because I wanted to find something that certainly that my professors and elders didn't know much about. And in those days, you whatever you learned about the South and, and slavery and, and the Southern products, you learned that tobacco was grown in Virginia, and then eventually cotton is grown in the deep South and creates the cotton kingdom that leads to the civil war. But I literally had never heard anything about Rice when I set out in 1970 to go to uh, South Carolina um, and was was a little taken aback at first, I think, to realize, A, that it was the blackest of the 13 colonies. It had a black majority. So the book that I wrote was named Black Majority. Um, it, it wasn't trying to say these were good folks or bad folks. It was just trying to put them on the map because that was literally unknown that that one of the 13 colonies was more than than half black. But it was also not known that South Carolina was by far the richest colony of the 13 um, Often if you ask people about that, they assume it must be New York or Massachusetts. Um, South Carolina was much wealthier, but of course it was extremely concentrated wealth in the hands of of, uh, elite white planters. But their money was coming through uh, slaves growing rice. And so what I've focused on uh, in my study was that earliest period my my father was a doctor i think i grew up thinking you should always try to figure out the cause of a problem you know if if you're sick i want to know when it started and when you first got these symptoms and so and and that was a that was a different approach from what was going on in the 1960s where there was lots of emphasis on reworking 19th century slavery, rethinking the cotton kingdom and the Civil War and and the after effects of that world, but but still not digging back to the deep origins. So So to me, um, early South Carolina, which was founded in 1670, Um, was really the the starting point. We've talked recently a great deal about 1619 and the arrival of Africans in Virginia, and they quickly end up being forced to grow tobacco. Um, And so um, racial enslavement is is earlier there, um, but it's much larger and more concentrated in South Carolina once that, Region takes off, and it takes off because of the introduction of rice. So, and and if most colonies in the 17th century, you send out uh, people to stake out land, and they do that, and then their first obligation is to try to find a way to make money to send back home to pay the, their investors. You know, there are people who've put investments into the ships and. And goods that have gotten them over there, and they're looking for an immediate return. So the folks in London are the so-called proprietors who, who were given control of of uh, Carolina. Uh, were telling their first settlers, you know, find whatever you can that will make us some money. And they they try various exper- experimental crops, um, not with great success. Uh, so they end up. Um, Finding de- trading with the Indians for deerskins, and the Native Americans are able to provide them with deerskins. They're able to ship those back to to London, but they're still exploring. They're trying to get to know a new subtropical. Climate that they had no understanding of. I mean, they're they're looking at the palmetto trees, which they'd never seen in Europe. There, the rivers are full of uh, alligators, which they had never seen. It's a it's a strange environment for them. Um, and when uh, Africa, when the first bar- settlers come from Barbados in the West Indies, they bring some African slaves with them. And those people find it a very relatively familiar climate. They've seen palmetto trees. They know how to make baskets out of uh, palmetto fronds. Uh, They know how to deal with alligators just the way they dealt with crocodiles. Um, They know how to use gourds just the way that Native Americans were using gourds, but things that um, that the Englishman had never really seen. And they knew how to grow rice. Um, and it's, uh, it's still a, a, an obscure and mysterious story as to how this actually gets started. But what was interesting to me in the looking back over early South Carolina history was that it was assumed, and this is in the 1960s, oh, it must have been developed by white men. You know, that because that was the assumption about most everything in the Atlantic world was that nothing really happened until the white folks arrived and then they straightened things out and fixed everything. So, South Carolina had a wonderful half valid myth uh, that they uh, lived with uh, about the seeds from Madagascar. They had an elaborate story about a ship that had been to Madagascar and had some rice seeds on board and it it uh, ran aground in Carolina or some somehow these seeds in the 1680s ended up there and then the clever white folks figured out how to how to grow rice and then they had this wonderful staple crop that 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 would help them uh, grow in their relationship to the English mother country. And that was basically an unquestioned assumption uh, when I came along. Um, And and the first thing I had to do was ask whether Africans knew how to grow rice. And yes, they did. And all along the coast of West Africa, I mean, there's even a portion of of that coast which the slave traders eventually named the Rice Coast you know, because so much rice was being grown there. Um, and, and so it, I found myself in the position of turning that proposition on its head. You know, we, I had been taught in school that this was unskilled labor that was being imported, that was just going to do whatever the white folks told them. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. These people were being imported because they were skilled, because they understood how to grow a crop that could be incredibly profitable if exported to Europe. And why could it be profitable? Because it was the cheapest of the grains, all these different grains that you have been studying and, and uh, educating us about. Um, it was very quickly evident that, um, that you got more bang for your buck out of rice. It was, it was cheaper to grow and more nutritious. And therefore, could be used um, as a military ration. You know, you could, you could, um, you didn't necessarily want it for yourself in your castle, but your your serfs and your soldiers uh, could be fed a diet of rice. Uh, it was easy to transport, um, and and cheap and nutritious. And so, all, all you had to do was convince your soldiers and workers that. This was all they were going to get, and they would learn rice. You know, the we think of the English sometimes as eating rice pudding or something. That that comes later. You know, it's only the the English knew nothing about about rice in the seventeenth century, and it seemed pretty clear to me, and I have stuck by this for fifty years that uh, that it's the Africans who show them how to do it. Not not every enslaved person being imported into the Carolinas, it came from a rice growing culture. Um, but many did. And one of the, the documents that most intrigued me, even though it was later, you may have heard of the, a famous ship called the Amistad. Uh, Steven Spielberg actually made a movie about it. But it was enslaved people who were being shipped to Cuba in the around, uh, 1840. Um, and they have, there's a slave revolt and they on board and they sail their ship North and they end up off the tip of, of Long Island. Uh, and, and now they're in abolitionist territory. There are a lot of people sympathetic to their cause. Three dozen of these people are taken into New Haven and interviewed by, Yale professors and and folks who can who they get translators and they take little life histories of these people. And I, I ended up I'm, I'm going to read this to you. I, I ended up putting this in a footnote in my in my book because I just went through these various this is a random sampling of, of 36 people. Obviously it's small. but you would get sentences like this. He was a blacksmith in his native village and made hoes, axes, and knives. He also planted rice. Somebody else. There are high mountains in his country. Rice is cultivated. People have guns, has seen elephants. Somebody else. He was caught in the bush by four men as he was going to plant rice. His left hand was tied to his neck, and he was 10 days going to Lambuco. Another one. He is a planter of rice. Another one. His parents are dead, and he lived with his brother, a planter of rice, and it goes on like that. You know, so so it's it's clear that that, uh, that these people knew how to grow rice. Now we also have advertisements in the South Carolina newspaper saying this shipment of enslaved people, you know, these are prime workers because they know how to grow rice. You know, they would they would actually mention that fact. So, so what happens, obviously, they, they have this skill, but they don't have a place to put it in practice. And the South Carolina Low Country is this amazing, unique region that not enough Americans are, are familiar with. They, they only know it from golf courses at Hilton Head and things like that. But it's an extraordinary region stretching about 40 or 50 miles back from the coast, that is is lowland, it's absolutely flat. And so there are marshes everywhere. Um, And there were huge cedar trees growing in these marshes that had to be cleared out. So the first generation is put to work clearing land to grow rice. Um, They could sell the wood to, uh, to the West Indies, where it was being used uh, to boil sugar, um, and they could let loose cattle uh, and hogs and to just browse in this rich countryside, they would put brands on them, and then eventually they would round them up and ship them to uh, the West Indies as as meat. So, and then in exchange for lumber, meat, the, the things that they could get their hands on quickly, they were bringing back enslaved Africans who were pouring into the West Indies by the late uh, 17th century. They're in Jamaica, Barbados, these British colonies, our English colonies are, are absorbing Africans very rapidly. The, the English, the Royal Africa Company is formed, Around sixteen seventy, just the same time that South Carolina is formed. And in fact, some of their some of the proprietors in charge of Carolina are also proprietors of the Royal Africa Company. So they're double-dipping. You know, they're making money off of trading in enslaved Africans and in putting them to work in Carolina. Um, So so in the late 17th century, I call this the terrible transformation. I mean, there there had been uh, slavery in Virginia before that. There had certainly been much slavery in the Spanish Caribbean, but it's only in this period in the late 17th century that the English really begin to buy into this idea that this is economically feasible and morally okay they need to get a lot of rationalizations from a lot of corrupt church leaders to make them convince them that it's morally okay uh, but but it's really in right around 1700 that this this takes off and they're by this time you know they've had people living there for 30 years they, they it's a it's grown to, strong enough, even though it's a tiny little colony, it's going strong enough so they actually have enough money to be able to invest in bringing people directly from Africa. Um, so instead of buying uh, slaves from the West Indies, they're sending ships uh, uh, back and forth from Charleston. The The city of Charleston is, is founded in 1680, 10 years after they get there. Um, and by before 1710, there is a black majority living there in this tiny little colony, which only has maybe 15, 20,000 people at the time. Um, but by that time, they have cleared these rice fields, uh, and and that process will continue as they acquire more land up and down the, the coast. It's an amazing process, and and there's no... As far as I can think, there is no other place in North America where, where the introduction of a grain has so dramatically shifted the landscape. You know, I mean, the plow that broke the plains in the, in the, uh, uh, in the West certainly alters the landscape drastically in certain ways, but, but this is a real reworking of, of thousands and thousands of acres and we can actually see it from outer space you know you can you it's it's like the to me it's like the pyramids of egypt <laughs> these rice fields are, are like the pyramids they're visible from outer space like the pyramids they're created by enslaved africans um and it takes generations um and yet it was very hard to see this for two reasons one the kind of White supremacy and racism of traditional American history, like, well, those people came from the dark continent; they couldn't have shown anybody anything. That was totally wrong, um, and and uh, it's it's only been in in say the last half century that we've really begun to understand this. And the other variable is actually going. Up above in an airplane or a satellite or and, and looking at it. Because if you drive through the low country and look out your car window, you just see marshes. If you look closely, you'll see a long canal here and there that'll zip past, you know, but you really don't see it. It's completely flat. If you get up above it, and now they have wonderful. Uh, photographs of it and, and other ways of looking at it, but these rice fields, which have not been used often for 100, 150 years, are still visible. And it's this, it's this weird grid pattern in an otherwise circuitous swamp landscape. You know, you'll be looking at a winding river that's a tidal river, looks very just like any other marsh. And then all of a sudden there'll be a huge rice field that's divided up it's as though you took a football field and and dug a trench you know every along every yard line and then dug trenches the other way you know so these are irrigation ditches um, graduated in size huge big trunk canals that are 20 30 feet wide 10 15 feet deep sometimes and then and then smaller irrigation ditches running off of that. And all of this was done by hand uh, over generations, you know, and 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 we've been completely oblivious to it. You know, I mean, it's one of the great creations of the North American continent. You know, people people take planes to go see Machu Picchu or something and and marvel at the uh, artisanship. But but this is it's amazingly hard work, but it's amazingly skilled work i mean you don't you don't dig these canals and these so-called rice dikes that they would throw up uh, around around the fields to contain the water you don't do that just by throwing dirt up in a pile you know you because then it would wash away with the first hurricane you know you you build that pile very carefully you put clay on the outside of it in order to hold it in place you then you build sluice gates that will allow the water to run in and out of the rice field to kill the weeds as the rice is growing and to irrigate the rice. Um, And most of these techniques, including the very shovels that they used to to dig, uh, most of these techniques were familiar in West Africa and transported so, so a very likely hypothesis is that these slave ships coming directly from Africa, in order to feed some minimal sustenance to the prisoners held below deck, would take on a load of rice from the local rice dealer. They would bring, put a mortar and pestle right on board, force the Africans to pound and clean their own rice and then cook it and, and eat the gruel that it created, Um, And so so the rice seeds uh, came on the same ships that the rice planters came on. Um, And then, of course, that knowledge proliferates to other enslaved people who not from uh, the coastal rice growing areas and eventually to the white planters who, by the time of the revolution, are claiming, you know, I grew X amount of rice last year, you know, as though they were the ones who knew how to do it um and of course they they weren't uh.
1: wow that's such a, a thorough and perfect answer i feel like to that question which is a very big question obviously you could as you've done you know write books about it teach courses about it but um, it's really it, it is a really profound story and it's uh deeply sad and it's as you said it's, there's also something um that, that's just bizarre about such a big transformation of landscape um, that then is is sort of missed and not appreciated and not um, discovered even by professional historians until uh, you know hundreds of years later. So um, thank you for for that summary. I mean I think that's, that's part yeah. of
3: that is a is a skepticism about uh, the southeast generally on the part of the nation. You know, very I mean now it's become a place for second homes and and tourist visits and so on, but. When I first went there in the 1970s, it was, first of all, much more of the black coastal culture, the so-called Gullah Geechee culture of that uh, coastal region was much more visible um, because now, because over the last 50 years, it's been steadily eroded by the selling of property you know the 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 value of coastal property went up second homes, golf courses, all these things with extended hurricanes some of that may drop back in the next 50 years who knows but but certainly in the last 50 years there's been tremendous development along that uh, in that area that has obscured much of what was was, there, you know, um, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that, how that yeah. plays out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Can you tell us a little, um, about, uh, the, the Gullah culture and links between, you know, rice growing, uh, mosquitoes, um, you know, different populations coming from Africa and that, that unique, uh, you know, population
3: that. Yeah. What, one of the things that's happened, in the last 50 years, with this pressure on the coast, uh, but also with the rise of, of African American politics and the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement, so on, is that the politics changed? And you had a situation by the 80s and 90s where there was black representation in in Congress, there was not a willingness to whole development by any means, but there was an interest in an increased interest in understanding this culture, both from the perspective of the descendants who were still living there and from the perspective of tourists visiting from the outside who were becoming more and more interested in the in, in, you know, they had seen Porgy and Bess when they were kids or something. They had some vague awareness of, of black life in the Low Country, but wanted to learn more. And so, um, in the last decade or two, with great labor, there was the creation of a thing called the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, uh, w- which is uh, was approved by Congress and and pushed by legislators from Florida, South Carolina. Uh, Georgia, North Carolina; those four states all had a piece of this um, of this low country culture, and so they they pushed for it, got lots of good support from the black community, and and that corridor now links together a lot of these sites. So you can think of Charleston as being right at the center of it geographically, but it includes Savannah, goes all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, goes all the way up to North Carolina. Um, Years ago, I spent a summer uh, excavating slave cabins at one of the coastal plantations in North Carolina, which originally had been set up to, to grow rice. Georgetown, South Carolina, which is north of Charleston, where all of uh, Michelle Obama's ancestors came from. Um, that was a, a town that was set up in the early uh, 18th century um, and, and was became the center of this rice-growing culture.
0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008, You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So,
3: what has made it interesting to get back to your to your question is that the population became you It became the one place where you had a a concentration of newly arrived Africans Um, in Virginia. There were actually more Africans in the 18th century, but they were never the majority of the population. They were spread out. They were they were anglicized rather quickly in various ways. You know, they they learned to speak English and and use it. in you know, further north in, in New York, they, they learned to speak Dutch you know, along the Hudson River. But, but they were they were assimilated in certain cultural ways. Whereas in, in the Carolinas, that didn't happen. These people were isolated on plantations, I, I would call them slave labor camps, but they were often isolated, um, and some of these were on islands, you know, so they were really isolated. There were no bridges to these islands. The, the white planters and owners would be there occasionally. They would have a white overseer, but they would leave uh, frequently. Many of them went north during the, the malarious season, which I'll talk about. Um, and so these people had a chance to um, learn from each other. Uh, find out what things they had in common as Africans. They were coming from very diverse African cultures, but there were lots of common denominators. There were common denominators in their languages. You know, they shared some words. Um, they they certainly shared some. Um, Experiences of, of you know eating the same foods or dancing similar dances or using similar musical instruments like drums and uh, the banjo is an African instrument made from a gourd uh, uh, and and eventually gets gets transferred as many of these things do into the white North American culture. But it there's a famous quote from Thomas Jefferson saying the the banjar is an African instrument. You know, he's very aware of that. So, the, and that becomes concentrated in the in the sea islands, even in a separate language. Basically, I mean, the the Gullah language, uh, which I could hear 50 years ago when I first went, um, you can still hear it to some extent, but it was, and it was a it was a faint reflection of what that language had been 200 years before you know so so in the 18th century it was virtually incomprehensible to the europeans it was made up largely of of african vocabulary african syntax uh, borrowing some um english words uh gradually but it and and it sustained itself some of the dances that they brought from africa some of the musical Instruments they brought from Africa um, persisted in a way that they did not persist among early blacks in Connecticut or New Jersey or even Maryland. Um, so, and and then that becomes a real um, uh, what can I say uh, a, a starting point for much of African American culture. You know, we often think of jazz coming out of New Orleans or uh i don't know other, other things but but it's it's that concentration in south carolina that that leads on to black english more broadly you know to a, a different dialect um black food ways come out of there um this wonderful recent program which you've probably seen called High on the Hog, spends a whole a whole session, a whole segment in South Carolina uh, because that was the, the hearth in a certain way for things that would eventually spread out across the South and then in the 20th century spread north into, into some of the very urban areas that you're uh, studying and talking about, you know, so that you get... You know, you you've many of the urban gardeners you find in Detroit and Chicago uh, and uh, Worcester, Massachusetts uh, have roots in in the Deep South. You know, and they're people who grew up growing their own crops, just the way their grandparents grew their crops, because that was the way they had to feed themselves. One of the many exploitations that the planters developed was that I will. I will give you rations, but they won't be adequate rations. I'll just, but I'll give you time off on, on Sundays to, to work your own garden. So if you wanted to have healthy children, you, you would grow your own okra and your own, uh, uh, greens and, and your own, uh, crops. Wow. Yeah. That really brings
1: it from, you know, you, you, were sort of speaking about, um, transformations of the landscape and culture you know that have happened since you started studying the subject in the in the low country and you know you went all the way back and came forward again and that's really great because i think it brings up you know a question we really wanted to ask which is okay beyond you know the colonial period um you know what do you think of us agriculture today including the legacy of colonialism in our food system uh and do you have any vision for for improvements things you'd like to see things you've seen over your career um, and you sort of brought up some of them, you know, the, um, now there's more attention paid to urban growers, but of course there've been people growing their own food for a long time. Um, so I'm just wondering in general, if it, from your perspective, you know, what do you see going on today and how do you link that back to this long, devastating legacy of, uh, you know, in- enslaving people and then forcing them to do all kinds of different agriculture, uh, and how that's, that's shaped lands and, and the food we eat. Um, that's a little vague, but you know,
3: well, the, the, I mean we're 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 learning you know and and it's been over these 50 years that agribusiness has become a a dominant phenomenon I mean I'll never forget uh, 20 years ago driving through the midwest which I had known well as a kid family farms were always these sort of romantic idyllic places with their red silos and now if you drive through those regions you can still see these old dilapidated farmhouses completely surrounded by soybeans for 20 miles or something you know that the the idea it was not a family farm it was a family farm until it was bought up by Cargill or somebody and and now it's it's this massive monoculture with all the the crazy social and and agricultural uh impacts that that has had and it makes me wonder I, I haven't Tried to draw this straight line and i'm not sure it's very straight but the world that i've been describing of of uh, widespread rice monoculture in coastal south carolina say in the early 18th century is really the it's it's the it's the granddaddy of all this, you know, it's the, it's the one place in, in New England, you have family farms with lots of stone walls separating them. And, and, you know, maybe they have a little bit of hired help, and but, 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 and, and certainly along the Hudson river, there's some bigger operations that actually exploited slaves. Um, but, but this kind of incredibly profitable, incredibly exploitative monoculture um, was pioneered in in the low country uh, there's an old there's an old phrase that became popular in the 60s and 70s of when slavery studies really began to pick up that 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 slavery represented the factory in the field you know that that before industrialization there was this other, place you know you weren't in a big brick warehouse but you were but you were doing monotonous repetitive labor at for virtually nothing and and someone was getting obscenely rich off of it you know and we associate that with with industrialization and the north and the late 19th century but that's going on in the Carolinas in the late 17th and early 18th century, long before the American Revolution. So that by the time you get to the founding fathers, you know, more than half of whom were slave owners, that, that's cooked in, you know, they've drunk that Kool-Aid, you know, they, they that's the way they, the world works for them. And some of them are reluctant about it or anxious, or like, I mean, Jefferson was a classic example, but, but it's as though we might be anxious about um, well, I don't know what would be a good idea.
1: Well, like like lithium or cobalt mining or something that, that involves you know potentially slave labor, but it's unseen. Uh, I mean, the difference there is he was he was seeing it. But but to your point, yeah, this was um, it was baked in. It's so striking what you said, monoculture. Vast transformations of landscape, uh, you know this exploited agricultural labor class and these this small class of owners from the very beginning, and and the, that regime has changed. You know the, the way it's done, <laughs> the crops have changed, but that that logic has actually been pretty continuous, and that's very striking uh,
3: um, to note. Yeah, something else because I mean, especially given your urban emphasis, is that this it's this is impossible without you need the you need the the proper landscape, you know, which they found in, in the low country. You need knowledgeable labor. They, it doesn't have to be slave labor. They could have been paying these people wages. They just refused to, to do it. But you also need, yeah, I mean, this is an export crop. This is no, So this is not subsistence agriculture. This is, okay, we're going to ship this stuff. And so, and one of the great ironies, Judy Carney wrote a wonderful article about this. She's a, an amazing rice expert who spent time in West Africa, and she pointed out that if you're a woman in West Africa, rice growing culture, you're very proud of growing rice. You pound a little bit every evening, cook it up for your family. You're a, you're a good housewife. You know, you're this is something you're proud of. You get deported to Carolina and forced to grow rice on these thousands of acres. And it's now detached from your family. You're not even allowed to give any of this rice to your family. They had to sneak it into the hems of their dresses in order to get some rice home to feed the kids. But instead you're in this industrial process where there's thousands of pounds of rice to be pounded. And it's all got to be done you know, within six weeks of harvest time. Uh, so one of the things I found was that actually there were more. <laughs> if if you go through the newspapers and look at accounts of arson, you know, barns that have burned down, they all burned down in September and October. You know that that if you're going to try to subvert this operation, uh, you could. The best way to do it is to you've now, you've now spent two months. Pounding all this rice, not being paid for it—it's all being stored in the barn before it's shipped to Charleston. If you burn the barn down, you know you—you you are that you know that's that's almost like shooting the master in the head, you know, in terms of destroying his his work. So, but what I wanted to say was that once you have it in the barn, and that's um, a complicated process. I mean, these fields are spread out. They would build barges that where they would cut the rice stalks and they would load them on these big barges, float the barges back to the to the barnyard, to the big house area, um, process the rice there. And and we can we can talk about that. But then they had to get it to market and, and get it to Charleston. And that was often done by boat. Uh, there were very few roads initially, it, and it's hard to move a heavy load. So they had they had boats that were rowed by enslaved people, and they would row down the Ashley and the Cooper River to the big uh, port of Charleston. And so the, the point I wanted to make was that, as with so many staple crops, you need a big urban centralized port. You know, you need some place where it can all be gathered up from the countryside and shipped efficiently. Now, the, the tobacco industry in Virginia didn't really have that. There was no single port, and those ships transporting tobacco often went up one river after another. They would go up the Potomac and stop at each plantation and they would roll the tobacco down and load it on board and then they would go somewhere else and they would eventually fill the ship. But in South Carolina, Charleston became the focus. Eventually Georgetown to the north and Beaufort to the south become additional uh, ports, same with Savannah. But um, it's a huge operation, you know, of, and Charleston Harbor, which is a beautiful big harbor, it's not unlike New York Harbor. You know, you have, there's a big Harbor and then there's a peninsula uh, sort of like Manhattan Island where the city is. And then and there's a river on both sides of that so that you've got ships lined up all along the, the banks. You know, uh, Walt Whitman referred to 19th century New York as mast hem to Manhattan. You know, and and uh, Charleston was the same way. It was just hemmed in by masts. There were ships uh, lined up at the at the docks and anchored out in the harbor. Well, let
1: me, Peter. I, I, I hate to cut you off, but we're we're running out of time here. So I just wanted to, um, for one, I wanted to ask Melissa. Melissa, do you want to jump in? I mean, there's so much we could discuss. Uh, there's so much lovely, um, vivid detail that you can bring to this entire era of, um, of really a, a lot of traumatic occurrences in agriculture, but as you say, that relate directly to which cities are forming in what ways and, and to have this land lasting impact on the landscapes. These are exactly the kind of themes I think we were exploring. But Melissa, um, please, do, what, what are you, what's, what's on your mind?
2: I was thinking specifically um, the interesting connection um, when you were talking about urban growers and how a lot of urban growers were originally from the south And especially with the great migration, how many, um, you know, many black communities moved up from the South to the North and how a lot of those folks actually have started urban gardeners. And also one of those aha moments where it was just um, that idea of sustenance, right? Like folks had to grow, learn how to grow these extra crops just to kind of sustain themselves and that knowledge um, you know, some of that knowledge was passed to their um, family members and things like that, maybe in northern cities. Um,
3: and it's a wonderful combination of it is, it's nutritional, it's a, it's a cheap, familiar way to feed your family, but it's also, you um, reassuring, it's continuity. You know, this is what grandma did, and this is what we're going to do here, even though we're living in Detroit. And in fact, it may work better for us here than it did there. Um, There's a wonderful scene in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, um, where it's wandering through the streets of New York, and there's a guy selling sweet potatoes, uh yams you know it's slightly different you know but but and he he says i i am i am what i am which which is and and in gala that means i am what i eat you know and so this this idea that you know you really are the you know you 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 can't live without without shrimp and without rice and without yams and without okra and by god you know if we can't get okra here in chicago we'll we'll find a way yeah
1: well thank you that's um i, I mean yeah we we really could talk all day and i'm i'm really sorry to 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 end the interview but uh you know time flies
2: i think just closing out one thing that um we haven't really talked we started talking about this a little bit um, but just the idea of how, um, climate change is going to change. Like, um, uh, you talked about a little bit of how development has started to change these rice fields and how people are starting to, um, acknowledge these rice fields also just in the sense of, um, being a part of, uh, black culture and also just, um, the, Actually, how the land has been transformed, and so I think um, I have a, a couple of different questions. We were actually um, talking a little bit about this with um, um, with uh, Dr. Um, uh, wait, sorry, That's Black. Yeah, um, and um, she was mentioning the idea of you know what what to do with these lands, especially uh, because of the cultural heritage. Um, but also in the sense of um, climate change and how these lands are going to change with climate change and um, our folks talking about, you know, saving these lands um, since, you know, climate change might really affect them. Um, But just your perspective on that in in the study of these lands Um, and, you know, anything that you...
3: You know, Melissa, I don't think we have a good grip on it yet. We have been so slow in our understanding of what's happening to us over the last 30 years and, and projecting it forward. So clearly in the late 20th century, the I, I think the main factor was this sort of real estate development that I described, you know, that has really transformed the landscape in many, many places and continues to. But I think for the first half of the 21st century, and God knows what comes after that, it's going to be climate change. It's going to be increased hurricanes and it's going to be rising sea level. And the low country is, you know, has a big X on its back. (laughs) You know, that's that's traditionally where hurricanes hit most frequently. And if they hit harder and more frequently. Um, and, and if um, ocean rise is part of that, then who's to say? You know, there's a long article in the New York Times last week about um, rich white folks in Charleston raising up their lovely brick houses six feet to get away from the next flood. You know, it's a huge yeah. investment of a million, a million dollars, you know, but so some people can afford to do that but but for people living out in the country or or for um for some of these smaller black communities that that's not going to happen so the whole ecology is is going to is going to change i think and and some of it is going to go underwater i mean with yeah. the maps of how half of florida just isn't there 50 years from now yeah. and there's a, a fascinating place north of Jacksonville uh, called Fort Mose, which was um, it, there was a slave rebellion in South Carolina called the Stono Rebellion, 1739. And these people headed for Florida. The Spanish welcomed them, set them up in a fort. And about 40 years ago, an archaeologist discovered this actual fort. Uh and it's now virtually underwater. You know, there's they're still barely working on the site, but they have to take pumps with them to work on it. And and uh, and so that that whole uh, that whole coastline is is uh, in transition. It what it what it means locally is that the salt water gets pushed further and further inland, you know, and that you know it's this wonderful vital interaction of fresh water and, and salt water and, and that as that shifts, that changes the whole ecology. So I'm, I'm not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, in, in one sense, I'm wondering if the rice fields could actually be more of a barrier, of course, like if they develop it, then there's going to be more property loss and all of this other thing. Um, but if if one of the senses of actually saving the rice fields could actually act as a little bit of a buffer um, instead of developing it, right? I don't know. Just just throwing thoughts out there. Just you know.
3: Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of it's going to hinge on insurance policies and you know whether people are allowed to build in places where they their house blows away in twenty years and then they collect insurance on it as so though it's not their fault for having built there in the first place. You know, we have incentivized that sort of crazy coastal development w- without an eye towards what's coming, you know, and, and I, I think uh, we're only beginning to, to rethink that. So it's it's, it, you know, I was one of those people who thought that all of New Orleans would Relocate after Hurricane Katrina, you know. I mean, that, but no, of course, you got to go back in, rebuild, start all over again, and get hit again 10 years later. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see. But it's, there's going to need to be some drastic rethinking.
1: Well, on that note, I think, um, this has been really wonderful, Peter. I think we've learned a lot, and I think you've given us the deep background exactly what we're looking for on sort of um, you know, how rice came to the South and, and how it impacted the formation of cities and, and a lot more. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank
3: you. Thank you. It was a treat. Yeah. And good go on for a long time. Yeah.
1: Before we hop off, is there anything you want to plug? Is there any short, you know, is there anything we should look out for a book article upcoming? I mean, we can certainly t- direct people to, to books you've, you've had out. I
3: mean, anything you want
1: people to, to, to be aware of.
3: Um. I've I've written a book called Strange New Land: Africans in Colonial America, which is very accessible for public. It's a very short book, and I'm I'm given Black Lives Matter. I'm now trying to expand that to into a third edition that will be a little longer and deeper, and 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 uh, and open for for people who are encountering all this for the first time you know they've never they've thought about antebellum slavery they've seen a cotton field in a movie but they've they've never even considered a rice field and never considered really colonial slavery and the the origins of racism which come with that And we didn't get a chance to talk about that but that that's the corollary so so slavery ends with the civil war but the racism carries on.
1: Well we'll definitely um we, we might have to have you back on. We might have to have you and Professor Fields black and do some sort of mega talk <laughs> at some point or work with another show that's focused on you know um, um, some of these issues I mean given that you know we're we putatively show at urban agriculture uh it's still really great to explore these themes and,
3: and available learn. if you decide to push further, but it's fun chatting with you. I appreciate it well thank you um so Peter
1: h wood not. Another Peter Wood. If there's another Peter Wood out there, just don't pay attention to that one. <laughs> Look for the H.
2: Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner.
1: Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.
2: For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast.
1: Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you.
2: Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.